Welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is Anthony Scaramucci. I am the founder of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm, and chairman of Salt, a global thought leadership forum encompassing finance, technology, and politics. Salt Talks is a digital interview series with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. Just as we do at our global SALT events, we aim to empower big, important ideas and provide a window into the minds of subject matter experts. We are excited today to bring you the first episode in a new series of SALT Talks with our friends at Abu Dhabi Global Markets regarding new paradigms in a post-pandemic world. Co-hosting today's talk with me is my dear friend, Mark Cutis, the Chief Executive Officer of ADGM, which obviously stands for Abu Dhabi Global Markets. ADGM is an award-winning international financial center located on the beautiful Almaria Island in Abu Dhabi. We hosted our inaugural SALT Abu Dhabi conference at Emirates Palace in 2019 and are excited to bring that event back to the UAE in the coming months. On today's SALT talk, we will be hosting a conversation about new healthcare and education uh, this is uh, very applicable and important for the post-pandemic world. These are two of the most successful investors and entrepreneurs, Jim Mellon and Michael Moe. Uh, Jim, Jim Mellon is a British entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist with a wide range of interests. Through his private investment company, Burnbrae Group, he has a substantial holdings in real estate as well as private and public companies. Jim's investment philosophy is underpinned by a careful analysis of new industries or major shifts in markets. Most recently, he has focused on investments and businesses in healthcare, biotechnology, and ag tech. His recent book, Juvenescence, marked the beginning of a rush of capital into the nascent field of aging research and also led to the formation of the company, Juvenescence, with his partners. Juvenescence is a leading biopharma company in the commercialization of therapies to slow, stop, and reverse aging. More recently, Jim authored the book Moose Law, focused on investment opportunities in, new agrarian, in the new agrarian revolution and fields of cellular agriculture. Jim co-founded Agronomics to invest in a portfolio of leading companies in this sector and is its largest investor. Jim sits on the board of trustees of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and of the American Federation for Aging Research, AFAR. He's a trustee of Biogerontology Research. Uh, excuse me, let me say that again. He is a trustee of Biogerontology Research Foundation and an honorary fellow of Oriel College at the University of Oxford where he established the Mellon Center for Longevity. And Jim also sits on the advisory board of the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging. And I might add, Jim, you're gonna be a really good friend of mine because I, I expect to keep this hair and, uh, and my face unwrinkled. So I'm really looking forward to spending more time with you, Jim. Michael Moe is the founder of GSV, a modern merchant bank that invests, advises, and partners with the fastest growing, most dynamic companies in the world, the stars of tomorrow. He's currently serves as the CEO of GSV Asset Management. Regarded as a preeminent authority on growth investing, Michael honors, Michael's honors include Institutional Investors, All-American Research Team, and the Wall Street Journal's Best on the Street Award. Michael is the author of several best-selling books, Michael has increasingly focused recently on his greatest passion, education. He is a visionary in the field of ed tech. A, he has a passion that he is pursuing for the last three decades. Today, he sits on the board of directors of Coursera, Curious, GSV Labs, Course Hero, Class Dojo, Parchment, Stormwind, Aussie Media. Michael and his business partners, Deborah Quazo, created the GSV ASU Summit, the world's greatest thought leadership forum in the field of ed tech. And my friend, Mark Cutis, I'm looking over at you and telling you, sir, that you and I are the underachievers here, sir. I don't know what we're doing with our careers after reading those two amazing bios. But I turn it over to you, sir, to start the questioning. And thank you guys so much for 
joining us on Saul Talks today. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. It's uh, quite the pleasure to be involved with this group of, four, of the four of us here. And I do want to say both of you are covering two key areas, education and healthcare, that I think in so many ways will define the new post-pandemic age. But if I could just step back for a moment and say, you have amazing credentials, you've achieved a lot. But when I think of the four of us, uh, Anthony Scaramucci has had many experiences that um, will be difficult to replicate. And if we do have a moment at the end, I would love to ask him some questions of his career, particularly in, in the Trump administration. But in any event, I won't, uh, I won't delve into that. I'll just go straight. Well, well, well first of all, Cutis, it was a very long career. Exactly. I just want to make sure everybody knows that, okay? It, 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 and if you, if you want to make me feel better, you could say it lasted 954,000 seconds. Okay, but keep, let me just put in my, my two cents here. You're the only person that I know that has emerged from that administration, which hasn't really been battered. So I think at another time, we'll talk about your longevity and your ability to essentially come out of this unscathed. So I want to nice turn for a moment to, to Michael on education. And the, the issue with education, particularly for the Middle East, is seminal. Now, before we talk about the Middle East, I want to ask you about the states. America has the best and the worst, kind of like Charles Dickens, who's the best of times, the worst of times. We have the best schools, and we also have massively underperforming schools, you know, in, in our, particularly in our high school systems, that have left behind a large swath of America. And I know that's been something that you have had close to your heart. Can you tell us a little bit about America, what we need to do in the States, and then we'll turn to your big project in the Middle East. Yeah, well, fundamentally, uh, one of the biggest problems in America, and, and, and this also is a problem in many places in the world, is that your future is determined by how well you select your parents. And that fundamentally is just unfair. And so we believe, uh, I believe strongly, that talent is pretty equally distributed around the world, but opportunity is not. And so how do you change that equation? How do you give everybody an equal opportunity to participate in the future? And that's access, and that the foundation of that is access to quality education. Great. So when we talk about the region, because I think this is going to be one area, yours and healthcare, that will be defining for, for the modern age for this area and for the world, what sort of initiatives, if you can just touch upon those, are you thinking about and what are you trying to do before we talk about why, you are, why you're in Abu Dhabi? Sure. I mean, to, to kind of back up even, GSV stands for Global Silicon Valley, which is basically what we felt was a trend 10 years ago was the mindset of innovation and entrepreneurship that's made Silicon Valley such a remarkable place was spreading throughout the world and we wanted to connect Silicon Valley with the emerging Global Silicon Valley. As it relates to specifically um, the Middle East and then you know, kind of broaden that uh, scope, um, you know, the Middle East is a fascinating place in terms of you know, the oil powered the manufacturing economy. Well, education is going to power the knowledge economy, and this region gets that. And so how do you transform a society? How do you it's, it's getting access to quality education. And so the, the, both the acknowledgment and the uh, mindset that education needs to be at the top of the list of priorities um, is very, very clear. And so we feel that support in every kind of level of conversations that we've had, and that's why we are so excited about putting a flag you know, in Abu Dhabi. So one more last question before I turn to Jim, and it's kind of a banal suggestion, but there isn't a one-size-fits-all for education, but are there common characteristics that you, that you think would apply to the U.S., the Middle East, and, and Europe for, for that matter? Well, I think there's some key philosophies. So if you think about uh, one idea is that the, the, the word elite means scarcity, you know, in most parts of the world, where elite really needs to mean excellence, as well as cost and quality are directly associated. So what we need to be able to do is make high-quality education is at low a cost as humanly possible, if not free. So we're an investor in Coursera. They have over 80 million students on their platform. 97% of them don't pay a dime. 
And, and so, there, I mean, there's many, many, many lessons to learn from different parts of the world and different areas of, of, of where there's both opportunity and excellence. But I would say it starts with a mindset. That's great. That, that's excellent. Thank you for that. I'm going to turn to Jim for a moment. We, we, you know, Anthony talked about uh, longevity, and you were a member, you're still a, a part of the Buck Institute, which I belonged to at, at one point in time. Tell us a little bit about longevity, what it means, because many people have confused longevity with people sort of becoming gnarled and living to be like 110, but without a quality of life, because I know that's not what you mean. Yeah, our first mission and what we do is to try and improve the quality of life in the latter years. And about 15% of people's lives at the moment are characterized towards the end of their lives by one or more severe illness. And our mission to begin with is to try and reduce that period, which can be as long as 13 years. So uh, rather than trying to extend life, which is our secondary mission, which I think will happen, by the way, and so we are looking at aging as a central disease from which the diseases of aging cascade. All the familiar ones that we know about, like cancer or heart disease or dementia, they proliferate as you get older. So they are diseases of aging. And what we're trying to do is to address aging as a central disease, which is now possible, which in turn will lessen the burden of these diseases of aging, which are really quite dreadful in their impact on, on older people. Great. And part of your mission also is to help mankind change their dietary input of various you know, proteins or various ways of eating. You've done a lot of work in this area, which has applicability here from a food security standpoint. But more importantly, you're saying to make the, the planet sustainable, we need to do different things in the way we grow food. Yeah, I agree with that, Mark. So basically, after the Second World War, and led by the United States, intensive farming became the norm. That is, uh, animals reared in very close proximity, um, and the use of antibiotics and hormones and so forth to encourage growth and to stop disease uh, became rife. Uh, that intensive farming is now a big threat to humanity, partly because it's the biggest source of global emissions, and if you're a believer in global warming, which I am, uh, it's something that needs to be addressed. It's about 20% of all global emissions, partly because 80% of antibiotics go into farmed animals. And if you think about it, this pandemic is pretty bad. But just imagine if we had a bacterial rather than a viral pandemic and the antibiotics didn't work anymore. We could have, I mean, I'm not making this up because none of us would have thought a year and a half ago that this would be as bad as it is. But we could have a black death on our hands where a third of the world's population yes. died for instance so we need to do something about reducing antibiotic usage in animals otherwise we become um, more and more resistant to antibiotics um, on top of that one of the great causes of disease in the world is frankly speaking the food that people eat and you may have seen that nestle admitted their board admitted that 80% of the food, they're one of the largest food companies in the world, was bad for human health. And this is across the world, basically. Diabetes has gone up from 1% uh, in China uh, in 1980 to 13% today, and it's a result of the Western diet. The food that we eat needs to change. And one way that we can do it, and the technology is here, is to eat plant-based foods, which are better substitutes than the food from intensive farming. And perhaps more excitingly, uh, use cellular agriculture, which is growing food in labs and factories to create healthy alternatives without antibiotics, without emissions, without great land use, without water use uh, on the scale that it's currently being used. So it's a very exciting time. And there are many companies out there with now with viable products. Maybe you can touch upon briefly on a few of these companies that you've backed and what they're doing, particularly when they're growing meat you know, in a petri dish, actually, in a, with, from cells. So tell us a little bit about that. So if I just uh, showed you my little fingernail, um, and we took a sample from a cow that was equivalent to the size of my little fingernail, which is about 2.5 milliliters. The idea is that in 40 days, that little fingernail's worth of sample, and the cow goes back, it doesn't get slaughtered, it goes back to its field, will grow into the equivalent of seven or eight cows worth of, of beef about 3,000 kilos, whereas the conventional way of 
uh, growing cows would take about 28 months. And the way it works is that from my little fingernails worth of sample, stem cells, which are the precursor cells for all of us, are extracted, differentiated into the cell types that you want, which are typically muscle and fat, grown in large steel containers that are called bioreactors. And this is why it's so interesting to me, because my background is in biotech, so this is a biotech process. There's no genetic modification, there's no Frankenstein element to this. The, the cells are bathed in the media, which is the nutrients, which are roughly equivalent to what cows would get from plants. And the growth hormones, which are roughly equivalent to what cows get in nature, are introduced as well. And then you get this gloop that is amalgamated and creates this beef. And that can be done in, across all species without the use of antibiotics no bacterial contamination, um, and it can also be done in materials. So some of our companies are growing leather in laboratories, cotton, cocoa, uh, and all of these things will substitute very effectively for the, frankly speaking, poor quality food that is being offered to most consumers at the moment. And this will happen um, within 10 years. So I just want to make, I'll quickly finish three predictions. In 10 years time, there will be no dairy industry as we know it on the planet, none. Already, plant alternatives are a huge business, and you saw that Oatly went public quite recently. But precision fermentation is coming down the pipe very quickly, and there will be no cows producing milk in the way that we, we see them at the moment within 10 years. In 10 years, 50% of the meat market will be plant-based or cell-ag-based, and over 50% of the fish market will be cell-based fish. So this is happening extremely quickly and will be one of the world's most transformative industries. Wow, that's, that's amazing. I, I, and I think if we kind of step back, and I'm going to turn it over in a moment to Anthony, fr from the prospect of educating the masses, you know, you, you mentioned 97% take Coursera courses for free, to being able to change the food chain and to provide people with nutritious food that doesn't damage the, plan the planet is amazing, and it's brave new world. On that note, Anthony, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Oh, I, you know, I, I appreciate it, Mark. I'm fa fascinated by the discussion. I want to I ask uh, both gentlemen the same question in their respective fields, and this is about political will, not just uh, in our countries, the UAE or the United <clears throat> States, but global political will on things like changing the food paradigm, changing the food supply chain, but then also discussing education. And as, as Michael knows, in the United States, education being a big issue. I'm the product of a public school, but we have a tremendous amount of special interests in education that prevent us from making innovation. It, it, Jim, is that the case in what you're discussing as well? And so let's start with Jim. Where is the political will or the potential political unity to get these things done that you're talking about in the future? Well, it's a great question, Anthony. And, you know, we're in the UAE, which imports between 85 and 90% of its food. It's one of the most food insecure countries in the world. Other countries like this would be my own country, the UK, which imports 50% of its food. Um, and so countries such as the UAE or the UK have a natural inclination to accelerate the process of uh, substituting the current form of agriculture. And so you're seeing a lot of innovation here, forward thinking, um, and frankly, capital going into, into, this, into this area. So where the governments have a vested interest in making it happen, you get a bigger propellant. But I wouldn't discount the United States or European countries, which are net food exporters either. The US has a quite a good regime for regulating novel foods, and, and, and as does Europe. And we're very surprised uh, at the speed at which some of this stuff is happening. So, for instance, I can confidently predict that by the end of this year, the fish coming out of laboratories will be on the market for U.S. consumers. Uh, chicken is already on the market in Singapore. It's already on the market in Israel. This is the, the dial-up phase of the internet of this industry. But you know, if we can pick some of the winners out of that dial-up phase, we're going to do very well. But overall, I think the public is beginning to embrace this very much. And you can see that in Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, Oatly, um, you know, the, the enthusiasm for those com uh, companies is reflective of general enthusiasm, particularly among younger people, to save the planet by changing the food system. Yeah, so just you know, following up <clears throat> on, on that uh, point, what's happened is it's 
completely um, uh, well known that in the knowledge economy in a global marketplace, what you know, your education makes the difference not only for an individual, but for a company, and for that matter, a country. You only need to look at Singapore, which has really been the model for investing in human capital for over the last 50 years, where they started their independence the same year that Jamaica did, both had about $2,500 of GDP per capita. And because of the prioritization of, of education in, in, in Singapore, you know, it was a big part of the, what fueled that success of their country, which GDP per capita day is the excess of the United States. One of the things about, back to the point about Abu Dhabi, I think that Abu Dhabi is creating what is going to be the next Singapore. Uh, all the types of pieces and fundamentals in place, including that understanding of investing in, in the knowledge economy. But you only need to look at places like China and India, how education is really what they view as their key strategic advantage to, to fast forward into the future. You look at the United States, and I, I too went to public schools, both public uh, uh, elementary and, and high school as well as college. And the fact of the matter is, you know, what the, the system that's been created in the United States today doesn't work. It's rigged. You only need to look at our nation's capital. Um, you know, right across the Potomac River in Alexandria, Virginia, Thomas Lee, or Thomas Jefferson High School is the number one high school in the United States. Right across Washington Memorial is the worst high school in the United States, yet Washington Memorial spends twice as much as Thomas Jefferson. Effectively, Washington Memorial is, is gets 30000 per kid and is a dropout factory where less than half the kids that enter that school finish that school. That's unacceptable in a country like the United States. And the fact that because of you know, this whole idea of the American dream and how education really was that opportunity to advance your cause, it doesn't exist today. 70% of the kids that are born poor will remain poor. And that's, that, that system isn't acceptable. I think there's great awareness, but to your point, there is a very significant entrenched status quo, uh, namely unions and other people that are benefit from the old system, which you know, frankly just, it doesn't work. You look at every single data point and you look at how America's competing against the rest of the world. And what, you know, you got parents, you got businesses that say we can't employ students come out of our schools, they can't read, they can't write. You got parents that see studies that show that this generation of children will be less educated themselves. You got politicians that are actually seeing that it's polling for the first time to change change the dynamics. And again, say you got the trench status quo. And the good news is, I think America's finally starting to say, you know, 200, you know, you know, the, the union says give us give us more time, give us more money. And American people are saying, you know, 200 years is long enough. We need to change things today. So just, I just want to have a follow up, then I'll turn it back to Mark. And this is a follow up again for both of you. And uh, and I, and I appreciate what you're saying, you know, because uh, and we're, all, all of us are friends with Michael Milken. He, he once pointed out to me that uh, the women's liberation movement uh, uh, caused people like Meg Whitman not to be school teachers. They went on to become billionaires of eBay and, and CEOs of Hewlett Packard. Um, I guess what I'm wondering, is, and, and this is applies to both of you as it relates to incentives, human capital and human ingenuity, it seems like in, in uh, in Jim's business, we have that, and I'll let Jim opine on that, whether or not that's true, but it seems like in the educational businesses, we don't have that for some reason, in terms of if you look at salaries and you look at where people are. So what, what's your reaction to that, Jim? Do we have enough incentives economically to get the world going to where you see it going? And then for Michael, how do we make those incentives better in education? No. So I think the incentives are fairly well entrenched by the IP, the intellectual property system of patents around the world. And that works very well in biotech, and that biotech IP uh, system has been transferred into the novel foods business. So there'll be a period of 10, 15 years of commercial exploitation, um, which will be the basic the price of innovation, which is a well-established and US-led um, system. Uh, the same uh, applies in the science of longevity. Uh, the longevity science is not just for the elites, as Michael was saying, just, you know, the elites in the, the, the wrong way of describing it, not, not the way you described it, but you know what I'm, what I'm saying. Uh, it's for everyone, ultimately, because we live quite a long life. And so if there's 10 years of patent exploitation on some of the drugs and therapies that biotech companies such as ours are developing, well, that's a relatively short space of time in 
in human uh, longevity. And so I think this will become available for everyone. And there are already drugs and therapies out there that we can all take to make ourselves live longer. And we know that uh, you know, people are getting better educated about food uh, and they are, um, as a result, changing their diets. And so sugar consumption is beginning to go down for the first time uh, ever in the United States and in Europe, which is a great thing because sugar is directly related to a lot of disease, not just diabetes, but also Alzheimer's. And the proliferation of Alzheimer's as a, as a result is going down, which is wonderful news. That is based partly on this IP system. And I, I'm not going to put any words into Michael's mouth, but education doesn't really have IP around it. It has passion and commitment and money and a governmental will, which is a very different thing. So looking at, um, you know, back to what, what incentives need to be aligned to create change, I think, frankly, a lot of change is taking place in front of our eyes, which was catalyzed in many respects by the pandemic. You know, in fact, you, know, you basically had 1.6 billion students that were instantly put online last March. Essentially, that's 20% of the world's population that was thrown in the deep end of the online learning pool and told to sink or swim. Some sank. Some got the edge of the pool, crawled out, and we'll never go back in. Many flail around a little bit, and all of a sudden this digital education, which had been growing at a nice rate, but only 2% of the overall $7 trillion education spend, has massive acceleration, which, by the way, you know, and we all know it wasn't perfect in terms of the quality and the access and so forth, but I think people can start to see the future and how you can start to not have to, to uh, fight this entrenched status quo and, you know, but I think also when you look at the great education systems around the world where you're seeing kids more effectively educated, Finland, China, Singapore, Korea. I mean, you know, one of the big changes or big differences is just the prioritization of education and the people going to that field are the top of their class, not, not you know, not uh, near the bottom. So you look, you look at the compensation that goes along with that in Finland, for example, you know, it's double that of the United States. Right, so I mean, there's all sorts of different movements that are that are that that, that you know represents the complex system like healthcare, um, but the, the good part of this is change is happening in terms of investment categories. You know, we we frankly stay away from where you know the control is taken out of our hands, and so investing in, uh, for example, uh, charter school physical charter schools in the United States. You know, there's better places where you're going to see more explosive opportunity, and frankly, where there's going to be more of a systemic impact. So, um, I think again, you know, ultimately, uh, capitalism does work. We could talk about contemporary capitalism, which is going to be a modification of that. But the fact of the matter is, you're seeing a wave of entrepreneurs that are coming to this space. You're seeing amazing ideas, and you're seeing venture capital that is coming into this into, into the education space that is about 20x of what it was 10 years ago. And that's because the growth is happening. You now have 40 unicorns in ed tech. I mean, people couldn't have imagined that five years ago. And so this is, you know, there's a bunch of different pieces that all add up to a big piece. And I think this wave is happening in a major way. And what I say, it's such a big change. You know, you had before Corona, BC, and now you have AD after the disease. And effectively, the future is accelerated to the present. I, you know, listen, I think it's a good point. I, I just want to cap it off because I, I, I worry about this given the neighborhood I grew up in. You know, I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood. Uh, my dad uh, was a crane operator, so he had a hourly wage, uh, but we felt very aspirational. Um, there is stuff going on in the UK here in the United States where blue collar families that were once aspirational feel desperational. And uh, the the, the, the goal politically has to be from a policy perspective to reach those people. Uh, they'll, they'll become less populistic, if you will, if that's even a word. I'm channeling my George W. Bush, Mark Hudis, less populistic. Um, they'll become less nationalistic. Uh, and so hopefully we can figure out good policies to, to, to do that for these communities. Well, I think what you're seeing, and, and again, there's all these different, ang there's all this anger out there, and there's all these people that are, you know, creating different, um, uh, you know, uh, movements. And, you know, if you boil it down, they're angry. What they're angry about is they don't feel like they're participating in the future and the system's exactly. rigged. And you know what? Exactly. They're right. The, the, it's, you know, the, the system is rigged and they aren't participating in the future. And, the found, and this goes back to the foundation of how you fix that is through 
providing access to quality education like you had through your public schools, like I had through my public schools, but far too few kids, I mean, fewer and fewer are getting that type of opportunity. And that doesn't you work. Might, That's not sustainable. We, 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 we certainly agree. Um, yeah. I'll turn it back to Mark, but I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the insight that you're providing. Thank you. Michael, I want to turn to you one more time on education. And you, you mentioned bringing the, the, the full bearing of the capitalist system to seek new solutions, to make a difference, and to democratize yeah. education. And I think everyone will agree and everyone will nod their head. But tell me, how should we address the potential for um, you know, shysters and people mm. who come into this space? And I won't refer to the last administration and the universities that they fomented uh, and that caused a lot of problems. But how do we address those issues? And I'm not suggesting more regulation, no. but I'm asking you, how do you think we should be thinking about that to protect people from being sold a bill of goods? So one of the biggest reasons I, th th that you're seeing change happen faster in education, which historically was very slow to change, is because the internet not only provides access, but it provides transparency. And so I, I think uh, there were a number of education operators that I can think of that basically were really good at selling things, but weren't that good at actually delivering the goods and delivering quality. Less being exposed. I mean, you can't, you know, the, the, the information travels so fast and you can see what goes on. And with artificial intelligence, you're getting real-time results in what's going on in school. So it's no longer kind of after the fact to say, oh my God, nobody learned anything in this classroom or, or they had this, this tutor and this tutor didn't help me at all. You know, that's it's just um, the transparency, I think, is, is extraordinarily important. I think as it relates to the financial uh, lens of, of what we're seeing, because this, this industry is getting so much attention, right, and you're, you're getting very sophisticated people involved, there's just much more scrutiny. So greater transparency and scrutiny. And scrutiny, and because now everybody kind of gets the fact, you know, why, you know, what's the purpose of education? It's to give people the knowledge and the, educa the education, the learning they need to be successful, whatever that's defined as. And now you can actually measure it. We call that return on education. And we think the companies that actually are gonna create the biggest investment returns are the ones that create the greatest education returns. And that type of alignment, I think, creates, creates huge um, acceleration for what you know, is already happening very fast. But we've seen what's happening now with technology and the new administration is looking at ways of curtailing the power of these large technological giants. Do you think we're ever going to get to that point where it'll be a similar situation? Because if you're referring to an unfettered space where it's open, yeah. then you're, you're expecting civil society to kind of harness you know, the bad players. And you're suggesting that with artificial intelligence and with transparency, those issues will be addressed. Is it possible that we'll create another large sort of um, operator in the space? So, you know, heretofore, there is no, I mean, despite uh, the second largest industry in the world spending nearly 10% of GDP, um, there was no large education companies. You gotta scratch your head and say, why? Well, there's a number of reasons we could talk about it if of interest, but I think much of that has changed. So, and you're seeing business, you know, Baiju in India has gone from nothing to we you know, valued at $16 billion today. You have companies like Coursera, which basically was a freemium model valued in the public market six, seven billion. So I believe you're gonna see many, many, you know, mega cap uh, ed education technology companies. And again, all that with success comes not only scrutiny, but all, you know, when you get network effects, which are, which are happening in this business where you get a disproportionate gain to the leader in the category, you know, the, the more, you know, more, um, cha more uh, scrutiny or more uh, regulation may ultimately happen. You see what just now happened in China, where China, some of the two largest education companies in the world were in China, and they've gotten destroyed over the last several, several months because the Chinese government has said, you know, what they're saying is the kids are studying too much. I don't really believe that's the, the, the real message. But, you know, so now there's concern about what the future of these companies that, that are providing tutoring are, you know, Talon New Oriental. Interesting. So you've also talked about uh, kids in going to university that perhaps they're better served not going straight to university but experiencing different jobs and getting into the job sector, doing something different than the traditional out of high school, into college, into the workforce. How do you see that potentially developing? 
Well, I think people are going to need to reimagine education. There are certainly some people that are going to go through a traditional route, but there's many other people that are going to get knowledge and get, get skills from other ways, which could, could include jobs. So in, in what we've got today is, I mean, you no longer can fill up your knowledge tank to age 25 and drive off through life. You're going to continually need to be learning things on an ongoing basis. Some of that might become from your occupation. That some of that's going to come from online learning. Some of that's going to come from games. I mean, there's just a number of ways that you're going to be able to mix and match and really create what I call a knowledge portfolio that allows me to future opportunities. And, and again, that's not a small part of that is going to come from traditional education. I mean, I think there's going to continue to be brick and mortar schools that educate a bunch of people. But this ongoing learning, which is the huge market, is going to happen in a variety of ways. Thank you. If I may, Jim, I'd like to turn to you for a moment. You have a great company, Juvenescence, and it has this, this uh, breakthrough metabolic product, which is called Metabolic Switch. As you know, uh, in, in this region, in, in, the, in the GCC, 30 to 35 percent of the people suffer, have metabolic diseases. Tell us a little bit about that, and also if you can weave in some takeaways as to what we should be doing after this program, because that's also, I think, will be useful to our audience. Okay. Well, so Metabolic Switch is part of the consumer division of uh, uh, Juvenescence, and uh, it's a very different market to the one that we're traditionally in, which is pharmaceuticals and regenerative medicine. Um, so we hired people from Weight Watchers, as an example, from Vitamin Shop in the U.S. to, to head up the launch, and be, it'll be followed by several other products that will be good for, for instance, the next one is spermidine, which is good for your metabolic health, uh, sorry, your mitochondrial health. Um, and, uh, but what we're trying to do is to get products that are scientifically proven, and this one comes out of the Buck Institute, which you, you know very well, um, and not just some sort of quackery that, you know, sold in a health food shop. And, and so metabolic switch puts you into a state of ketosis straight away, um, and it keeps you there for 10 hours. Um, and you don't have to go through the ketogenic diet, which most people can't tolerate because it's too difficult to do. So it's a great substitute for uh, willpower, actually. So you um, don't have to go through the ketogenic diet? No, it does it for you. Okay, maybe you can explain that to us. Yeah, so it basically is, uh, it, it induces ketosis through okay. its mechanism. Um, and in the same way as if you went on a ketogenic diet, but without you having to watch your, what you're eating, basically. So it's, it's fantastic for this region. And actually, we would love for it to be, when, once we're you know, fully embedded in the, United, in the US, to be uh, commercialized in this region as well, because it will have a very positive effect. One of the problems is that it tastes absolutely horrible. Uh, and so they're working on new flavors to try and make it palatable, because it's a, a breakfast drink that you drink in, in, in the early morning. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, there are things that people can do today. There's the statement of the obvious, don't smoke, do some exercise, not too much exercise, um, you know, uh, eat healthily. I mean, people know all about that. But that won't keep you alive anywhere above your normal lifespan, which is around 85 for the developed world. Um, so, I, but I do think, Mark, that in 20 years' time, children will be born with a life expectancy of between 110 and 120. Uh, and then we have to rethink the world. And that will happen because about 20 years ago, the human genome was unveiled. And the key pathways that cause us to age, they don't determine us to die, but they cause us to age, can now be manipulated. So th th all of them have been proven in mammals and in some cases in human beings to enable us to live a little bit healthier and a little bit longer. So one key thing that uh, I'm not a, uh, advocating this as a medical practitioner, but you can go into a pharmacy here and get metformin. Metformin is a frontline diabetic drug, but it has been proven empirically and in very many studies. It's been around since 1957 to be safe and to be anti-cancer uh, and to be anti-Alzheimer's and to keep you alive longer. And it's a generic drug, so it's available to everyone. It costs cents. And it's been around for a long time, obviously. It's been around for a long time. Mil many millions of people use it. So that's one thing that you could do today. Okay. Uh, me to do it. Um, and what you're doing, and you look yeah. great, by the way. And, um, uh, but the, the, the last thing I'll just say is a little soundbite is I completely agree with what Michael is saying. The paradigm at the moment is we assume we're going to live to 85 or 90. And if we make it to 65, maybe a little bit longer. 
So that paradigm is you're born, you learn, you earn, you retire, and you expire. That paradigm needs to be ripped up, thrown away. And that's why what Michael is doing is so important, because as he said, education is a continuum. You won't be, you know, at a, you said fill up your tank of gas and 25 you're on the road. You have to continuously reinvent yourself. But you also have to think, first of all, how are we going to finance our lives? We're not going to be able to retire at 65 years old. Governments will not be able to support that. Uh, and secondly, how are you going to occupy your life? It's like waking up in the morning with 36 hours ahead of you instead of 24 hours. You need, we need new structures. We need new ways of building relationships. And this is going to happen very, very quickly. So as I said, within 20 or so years, life expectancy at birth is 110 or 120. Will humanity be able to cope with it? I hope so. I believe so. That's quite the challenge. Please. I was going to say, it reminded me when you talked about the, the treatment that tasted, the side effect that tasted bad. That's one of the issues with historically education. It tasted bad. And so you find the entrepreneurs that are really succeeding. Some of them, my, my advise you, the founder advise you, was, was amazing. And I tell you, you know, $16 billion market cap. He says, you know, we serve you broccoli, but we put chocolate on it. And, and so, they, they, you know, it's, it's how you put chocolate Onto, uh, onto learning, and how, you know, we have a concept called Hollywood meets Harvard. How do you make education entertaining, engaging? How do you create great professors to be stars, right? And all in a way that, that, that you're gonna learn more, it's gonna, be more, it's gonna make, make more of a difference. But that will be different from, that will, that will be an evolutionary process because you mentioned, for instance, Korea and Asia, where they subject the children to sort of very long hours of studying. And the idea is road education, right? And then you pass the test, and in many other countries too. So that will have to evolve. And we'll have to, as humans, we'll have to go to a higher level to begin to appreciate this. Absolutely. This is the world of, I guess, that Peter Diamandis talked about, the world of abundance, where we're going to have infinite resources. And then we're going to have to spend time kind of thinking through, and this is what you were referring to. I want to ask you again a very basic question. You mentioned metformin. Uh, and how about intermittent fasting for you know the people in the region who have these metabolic disorders? Do you think if they practice intermittent fasting, you know, eating within these time windows of you know six to eight hours, it can actually help them? Absolutely, absolutely. There are plenty of people in the longevity industry who do use intermittent fasting, including the guy who um, advocates metformin more than any other. My friend Nir Barzilai from Einstein University in New York, he's also a practitioner of intermittent fasting. So. Absolutely. But these things will not keep you alive to the 110 or 120. It's the new therapies that are being developed now that are based on uh, biological change. Because all of the gains in life expectancy that we've had in the last century or so, which is roughly double our life expectancy, have come from environmental gains. They haven't come from any fundamental biological change. If we took someone from 1900 and put them around us today, they'd live just as long as us. But in those days, they lived to 47 years exactly. on average. So environmental change has been the key driver. The next stage of longevity increase is biological. And that's happening very quickly. The science of longevity is catching up with the aspiration of just about everyone to live a longer and importantly, healthier life. Great. One more sort of basic question. You, you also mentioned that uh, not too much exercise. And in this region, there's this tendency for a cohort of young people to really work out hard and, and also to get pumped. How, 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 do, how do you see that? Well, all they have to do is to watch, and I, as I did last week, um, the match between Denmark, I can't even remember what the other team was, uh, and the young guy collapsed with a heart attack um, okay. on the field. That's the danger. You know, use... Uh, drugs that are enhancing drugs do too much exercise and you put tremendous strain on your organs you certainly won't live longer as a result of doing that so don't do it that's categorical thank you on that note I want to turn it back to Anthony well you know, it's interesting the 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 exercise category uh, people don't realize that but particularly as you age you got to have moderate exercise because otherwise you'll, you'll hurt your kidneys actually so um, but I want to ask you both something uh, for the common person. Uh, so let's let's start with you, Michael. Uh, I want to educate my seven-year-old. He's tied up on his phone and he's tied up on his Nintendo Switch and he's got a PlayStation and an Xbox. 
just kidding. He doesn't have all those things, but you get the point that I'm making. So what do I do as a parent uh, to break that stronghold and to get him to start thinking more about the entertainment aspects of education? Well, I think that's it. I mean, find things, put, put chocolate on broccoli. You know, games is going to be an important place, way that people learn things, especially young people going forward. You talk, you look at Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, both learn coding by because of games that they they played. So it, it's it's finding things that are that they want to do as opposed to being forced to do. But I'll also say as a parent, being engaged. I mean, one of the most important things for for a student's success is having an adult that is really taking an active role in in their learning. And in fact, you know, see some of the most successful schools, and it can be in very difficult situations. It's required to have at least a parent that's 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 really on top of it, active. And, and, and kids, you know, kids like a parent that that cares. And so the same sort of question for you, Jim. What do we do to get these kids? I mean, you know, obviously, can't bring the Oreos into the house or the Coca-Cola. We saw Cristiano Ronaldo do that with the Coke the other day, drop $4 billion in market cap for the company. But what are some of the simple things that parents can do for their children to get them thinking about longevity and health? I was shocked to see that 70% of 18-year-olds in America are obese. That is unbelievable. There were almost none in 1950. One of the key reasons for that is the corn uh, sugar syrup, um, which was subsidized and remains subsidized by the federal government in the United States. And you know, food companies have been living under an umbrella of price protection for far too long. So yes, there's a parental influence, but parents can't you know, monitor everything in the supermarket. They, can't, they haven't got the time to pick out the best foods necessarily. But what I would say, and I think this is really important in the year of COP26 and you know, talking about global warming with Joe Biden at the helm now, is that carbon taxes should be levied on conventional food producers that do damage to people's health. That should be a universal phenomenon. And it's great for governments because they all need money at the moment. But at the same time, carbon credits should be used to promote alternative protein and food producers to make alternative foods more commercially palatable for people to buy. And so it's the parents I can't really say anything about except that most parents want the best for their children. But when faced with a panoply of rubbish in the supermarket, isn't it best just to get rid of that rubbish and substitute it with good stuff? Well, listen, I think I think it's uh, it, it, it's spot on. I think one of the problems, though, is uh, if I took you to the local diner here, the plate size in 1950 was this, yeah. and the plate size now <laughs> yeah. is that. And, you know, people are been, they've, they've created habits from themselves, myself included. Um, I have, trust me, I have many nights of self-loathing when I know I've, I've it, it overindulged. But I, get, I guess it's also education, isn't it, uh, Michael? I mean, isn't it an educational thing as well in terms of creating these habits? Uh, isn't the health component that Jim's talking about part of your education story? Absolutely. I mean, again, you know, it's knowledge economy and it's how people obtain knowledge to give them, you know, give them an opportunity to participate in the future. And health is obviously, you know, fundamental to that. I, I think it's made a difference, or at least it's made a difference with many people I know when they put the calories of a food, you know, on the menu. I mean, all of a sudden you're aware of it, it gives you some information, say, holy cow, that's not worth, you know, 1,200 calories to eat this, you know, this, this, this uh, sandwich. So, I mean, that's, it's just, uh, you know, the, the being informed, and again, the, we're, we're in a world of infobesity. There's so much information, so how do you create signals amongst that noise? How do you create crisp ways for people to obtain that knowledge? Because there's so much information out there that it's hard to, it's, you know, it's hard to know what's good and what's not. So I just listened to my friend Jim, he tells me all I got to know. That's oh. <laughs> if I can just jump in for a second. I think the challenge of the modern age is not that we follow the elites, is that the common man has to take responsibility for himself and herself. And this concept of infobesity, everybody knows that you shouldn't be eating that way. No. I mean, honestly, everyone knows. No one is shocked, but they have chosen to eat that way, just the way people have chosen not to take the vaccine. So ultimately, as we go into the next 
you know, the new world, we're all going to have to be much more responsible for ourselves. The state will have to help people yeah. who try, but it's very tricky because we don't want the state to be heavy-handed, and I think this is going to be an evolving political problem. Yeah, and, I, and by the way, going back to the previous question, I don't want to imply they think it's all, you know, it's, it's, it's all you know, the secret to getting kids to learn you know, is to give them corn syrup, right? Um, I'm saying that, but, but creating things, ways to learn things that, are, that they want to do. You look at Roblox. I mean, Roblox has a, you know, a $65 billion market cap. I mean, kids love doing that, and they're learning stuff, right? I mean, it's a creator economy, and, and, and that's the type of thing that I think how you integrate that with obtaining real knowledge that can help you uh, be successful is, is how I think about that. Absolutely. I, I have one, Mark, if you don't mind, I have one Please. last question for both, and then I, I'm going to let you conclude us here. Uh, I want to talk about the democratization of your ideas, um, you know, both in education and in health and fitness and awareness and longevity to that common man. Um, Mark is right. They've, they're, some people are making bad, very bad decisions. But how do we make sure that everything that we're talking about today doesn't come across pedantic, doesn't come across elitist, and yeah. we can get it disseminated into those areas that they're so desperately needed. So 25 years ago, I wrote a white paper called The Dawn of the Age of Knowledge, and in that predicted or forecast the emergence of the knowledge economy and how the internet was gonna change everything and how education was gonna be at the center and how online learning was going to democratize education, increase in access, lower the cost, and I thought ultimately improve the quality. The problem with that, 25 years ago, not one part of the system was really ready to accomplish that, including, I mean, John Chambers 20 years ago said online education was going to be so big, it was going to make email look irrelevant. And, you know, the problem with that 20 years ago, you didn't have the computer power, you didn't have video on the internet, you didn't have, you know, teachers weren't digital natives, they're digital immigrants, you, had, you know, every aspect, it just wasn't ready, right? Today, that's changed. And even poor kids, and again, the ability, you know, it used to be the dream to be able to provide cheap technology in people's hands. That's, you know, and there's some issues, but that's really not the issue. X, you know, peep the technology, you know, cheap technology, whether a person's paying for it. My daughter taught in most poor schools, basically in America. She said every, every kid, you know, was 100% minority. She said every single kid had a smartphone. I mean, it shocked me. But that's what she said what the reality was. So I don't think that's the issue. The issue really is about you know, providing ways to not just put education, physical education online, but to reimagine how you can do this better, faster, and fairer, more, de more democratized. And, that's what, and by the way, that's what's so exciting. That's what gets me excited. When you see these, you know, what I call weapons of mass instruction. So these you know, rapidly scaling, you know, easy to access, removing friction, from the ability to get the education I need to, to, to be successful. Jim, anything you want to add? Yeah, so I just say that, uh, you know, an example of how we are living in better times is the fact that these vaccines were developed so quickly. In the old, I mean, this is the best example I can think of. In the olden days, it would take at least 10, 15 years to develop a vaccine. Within six months, US companies, German company, British company had developed what are effective and now readily available vaccines, at least in the developed world. And they'll safe become and safe vaccines. Safe. It's important for us safe. to... Everyone should be having this vaccine. Everyone should be having these vaccines. They've done that really, really quickly. And that's an illustration of how, first of all, the collaborative power of the internet that Michael was talking about brings scientists from around the world together very effectively. And secondly, our knowledge of biology is so much better than it was just 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So I'm very optimistic that if in the last seven years we've been able to cure HIV, um, to cure hepatitis C, to develop cancer immunotherapy, and to develop CRISPR-Cas9, all of which are multi-billion and very effective industries, what's the next seven years going to be like? It's going to be even better. So we live in a. We should be very optimistic, and you know I I I, I feel that we're very lucky to be living in this age, notwithstanding the pandemic, which will be gone quite quickly. All the good stuff that Michael's talking about, all the good stuff that you are doing, Anthony, all the good stuff that you're doing uh, in, in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, and the stuff that we're doing in, in our companies, is just a sort of small microcosm of all the great stuff that's being done by a collaborative humanity. So just don't listen to the noise and just let's be optimistic.
Well, Jim, Jim, can you make me taller, though? I mean, that's, you know, just yes. sure. Let's yes. throw that in there before we, we can. Okay, good. I'll be, You're pretty tall already. I'll be, talk, I'll be talking to you after this salt talk to figure out how to do that, okay? And I, and I expect it to be very easy. It's like a freeze-dried yeah, thing that I can down drink for a couple of weeks. And then I think about <laughs> you, you look, you, you look remarkably young. I have to say, um, you know, you look as the same age as your son. So that's a great tribute to you and your well, that's, genetic that's, makeup. That's because I'm a television person. I know how to do lighting better than anybody. <laughs> that, that's why. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, do you have any follow-up uh, questions, Mark? Yeah, just one kind of basic question. You're both here in Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, uh, and because you, you're doing some extremely exciting things that are path-breaking, and you've, you, you've chosen to be here. How, how does that fit into your, to your game plans? So after uh, having the opportunity to be here a number of times in other places, I really believe that Abu Dhabi is going to give us a, a window to the future, and, and for a variety of reasons. One, we've talked about before, just the prioritization of going from an oil economy to a knowledge economy, but also just the you know, smart people doing important things, but also just geographically. As this world becomes more global and more connected, which it is every, every day, Abu Dhabi, is, as we know, it's a two and a half hour flight to Mumbai. It's a three hour flight to Tel Aviv. It's a four hour flight to the, to the west coast of Af Africa. Africa. You know, it's, it's, it's just so well situated. I mean, when you look at the power, I call it the V-chips, Vietnam, China, India, Indonesia, Philippines. I mean, how could you be in a better place to kind of reach these, uh, you know, where the world's gonna be created for the future? And so, you know, great leadership, of course, but, but, but many, many smart people that increasingly are coming here, and I think you're gonna see the real network effects. And so we, you know, we're gonna you know, put on a flag here, as we said, you know, we're gonna be running money out of here, We'll be running innovation labs out of here. We'll put it in conferences out of here. Um, and we're going to be you know, very active um, in helping, we hope, to build this ecosystem that I think in the next 10 years is going to blow people away. That's very exciting. Jim? Well, I have not much to add to uh, what Michael said, except that I agree with it all. But I will just give you a little bit of historical flavor. When I started my career, I started in Hong Kong, where I have permanent residency, as I do here as well. Um, and I have to say, and I wrote an article about it a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, but the Minister of Tourism read some, somewhere um, that this is the new Hong Kong. This is the new Hong Kong. Flat taxes, easy uh, to incorporate businesses, multicultural, uh, very forward thinking, uh, and doing, I mean, you just have to look around at the infrastructure as well. We, we are super, both Michael and myself, super excited to be involved and honored to be here, actually. And just, I have to ask you, I mean, what is your view of what is going on in Hong Kong right now? I mean, it's obviously quite troubling. So you talk about being the new Hong Kong. Well, you know, Hong Kong is going to be replaced by somebody. And I think, again, in Singapore, which has been an, an interesting place, again, I think there's so much opportunity here. But what's your, what's your reaction to what's going on in Hong Kong? What's happening in Hong Kong is very complex. But it certainly looks like, you know, even to the untrained eye, let alone to the professional, that there's a dramatic sea change that is underway. But for us, what we're looking at is that you have an ecosystem, that we're building an ecosystem in ADGM, where the fact that you can now get golden visas, which was never the case before, the fact that you have, you know, very low taxes, the fact that the pandemic was handled very well. Because if you think about many Asian countries, they handled the pandemic very well. But then they, sh they shut down the country, so you couldn't come in and out. Whereas in the UAE, you were able to travel in and out most of the time. Mm. So if you combine that with the basic edifice of, of this country, which is you know, low taxes, you have access to capital, because you have large sovereign wealth funds, you have the foundational pillars of ADGM, which is common law and a smart regulator, and you have expenses that are actually amongst the lowest in the world, particularly because of housing, you're creating an environment where young, motivated people who want to do things can come here. And that's the aspiration, is to create the future here and to encourage innovation and to encourage people to come here. And it's safe. And it's safe, it's exactly. Which is a big consideration. And, and, Absolutely. It's, and it's beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. You, you, all, all of you forgot to mention the food. So since I'm Italian, I got to throw that in there. <laughs> Some of the best restaurants in the world are in the UAE. Yeah. 
But guys, thank thank you so much for uh, joining Salt Talks with us in this uh, new partnership that Salt has with ADGM. Uh, this will be the beginning. You guys are the uh, inaugural uh, part of this series that Mark and I will be doing. And so we're both very grateful to you. And I look forward to seeing you in Abu Dhabi soon. I can't wait to get over there. Mark's promised me easy entrance and easy exit. Isn't that right, Mark? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, I can't, I can't wait to get over there. I'm going to have Jim pick the restaurant, though, yeah. so that I know that it's uh, it's plant-friendly <laughs> and healthy and all that other good stuff. Thank you guys again for joining us. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks, Anthony.